Hi. Welcome to Hope Church. Yes, Pastor Q, his wife and sister-in-law. The whole family's out of town. I'm in charge. No, just kidding. <laughs> they arrived well, safely uh, in Thailand, and they're really uh, enjoying their time. And all the money that we collected, that we offered and sent to Thailand to help build the worship center there on the promised land for Lana and Life Impact International. Um, they've been using that worship space for a while now, but they've been waiting for Pastor Q or I, you know, a representative from our church to come so that they can do the official dedication ceremony, dedication service. So that's what they're doing there. So fabulous that not only Pastor Q, but his wife, even Joyce Hamanim, is able to be there. So really, really good. If you do Facebook, um, Pastor Q posts regularly. You can see pictures of him eating all kinds of yummy things over there. And then after his time in Thailand, he'll be going on, as you know, to Korea, where he'll meet up with Pastor Todd, Pastor Marty from the North Georgia Revival Pastors, as well as Pastor Shin, I think Pastor Young and Hannah. Um, I think everybody's out there, really. Um, so yeah, praying just for just amazing outpouring of his spirit over uh, the people in South Korea when they are doing that. As you know, Pastor Q's been, uh, well, he just started last Sunday, a series called First Things. And last Sunday, he preached about first things as parents, that we as parents, first thing that we need to be doing is praying for our kids. I think it really impacted a lot of people. I kept hearing throughout the week various comments from different ones um, about, you know, just how they were really uh, stirred or they were challenged and just about being a parent and praying for their kids. And he and I actually, every Tuesday morning, so after Sunday, Tuesday morning, we have a staff meeting, just him and me, two, two staff meeting, two-member team, and we always debrief and talk about the sermon. And he was saying, you know, that remember he was talking about the three, the three things that um, parents pray for? And he said that um, he thinks that most parents really, what they pray for is health, you know, especially if your kids have allergies, if your kids are uh, picky eaters, if your kids have other, maybe they were born premature, or just other health issues, and you really want to pray for them to be healthy, robust, strong, big, things like that. But the question he and I were talking about was, really, what do you pray for? If you were asked, what's the top three things, and I, you know, just put a mic to you right now and say, what are the top three things that you pray for regarding your children? Would you be able to list it, bam, 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 the top three? Or do you have to think about it? Or is it just only one? So when he was preaching that last Sunday, immediately the top three came to my mind. I know what my top three is. And I just wanted to briefly share it with you. And also you guys can share with one another when you talk and just share, again, what the top three is. But for automatically, for me, number one is, it's really three Fs. Number one is faith. Number one for me is faith. Even above physical health or anything like that, faith. You know, just because they're a pastor's kid, my kids, you know, at any time, I feel like, you know, life is hard. They could fall away from the Lord. They could backslide. They could, you know, walk away from the faith during college years, whatever. And it's tough sometimes, particularly for pastor's kids, just, I guess, the pressure and, and people, the expectations. So my prayer always is faith, no matter what, no matter when, where, how. Faith, they will not lose faith. God gifts them with strong faith. Secondly, you might not think of, but I want to encourage you parents to do this, friends. 
friends are so important, even more important than parents. Your kids are going to get to an age where they're going to value the opinions of their friends way over the opinions of what their mom and dad think and say. So you need to pray now, and you need to really set that course for, for um, God to provide a community. You know the term that uh, we've become accustomed to using is marvelous comrades. We hear that all the time because of Pastor Bob Hartley. Marvelous comrades. I pray constantly that my kids would have marvelous comrades, a community of friends that are going to support them, encourage them, and sustain them through difficult times. And the third F is, and this is all-encompassing, is future. This is where I pray for, you know, whether it be college, good grades, the uh, right husband, um, what they'll do in life about what they're going to do for the kingdom, you know, future health, future uh, to grow old and live a life well lived. And, you know, everything that falls all under the third F, which is future. So there you have it. But today I'm actually not going to um, continue in that uh, series about first things. Uh, Pastor Q is doing that. Today I actually, you can see it already up here, I want to talk about mountains. I want to talk about mountains. Isn't this a fabulous picture? I want to talk about mountains. I love mountains. Hun loves mountains. Hun is an amazing skier. He skis amazing, amazing, amazingly. I don't ski at all. Um, but he, I don't know how he does it. Uh, now that we live here, my kids aren't really learning to ski, but, you know, when we lived in Seattle and Vancouver, it was awesome. I could stare at mountains all day. There's just something about them. They're just the sheer size of them, you know? It's just, it's awe-inspiring. They're just so majestic. When I think about God's creation, when I think about nature, when you see these towering, you know, snow-capped mountains, it's just it's just the beauty of them. I could stare at it all day. But growing up here in Maryland, I never got to see mountains. Yes, yes, raise your hand if you've been to Skyline Drive. You've been to the Skyline Drive to see the colorful autumn foil, you know, the foliage, the, the leaves turning colors. But when you think about mountains, you're not thinking about Skyline Drive. You're thinking about something like this, right? Something snow-capped mountains, something huge, mountains rising over the skyline or, or um, you know, behind the city or, or something like that, right? This is actually a photo of Mount Rainier. Mount Rainier is a super, super tall mountain in the state of Washington, and it's truly amazing. As you know, uh, I lived in Seattle for about seven years. My twins were born in Seattle. And um, if you see the skyline here, this is an actual picture, um, the Space Needle, and then on a clear day, if you're lucky, because you know it rains a lot in Seattle, but on a clear day, you can see Mount Rainier. It's breathtaking. If you've ever been on, uh, from the Space Needle to where the uh, Mount Rainier is, it's about a two-hour drive. So it's not like right next door. It's about a two-hour drive distance if you're driving there. Um, and if you've ever flown into Seattle and you were able to see Mount Rainier from the airplane flying into SeaTac Airport and you saw a clear picture of Mount Rainier, you're lucky. This is a picture of Mount Baker. Anybody here at Mount Baker? Mount Baker actually is also in the state of Washington, and this is really close to the U.S. and Canada border. 
It's called Mount Baker. It's also very, very amazing, majestic. Hoon and I, when we lived in Vancouver, we would drive down often to Seattle. Then when we moved and lived in Seattle, we would drive up often back up to Canada, and we would have to pass by this Mount Baker. In fact, when we lived in Vancouver, we lived in a very high-rise apartment building, and we could see Mount Baker on a clear day from our balcony. And that is a distance of also about two hours away. But on a clear day from our balcony in our apartment in Vancouver, across the U.S. border, because again, this mountain is located in the States, we would be able to look and see the outline and be able to see Mount Baker. Just amazing. I don't have a picture of that from my balcony. Sorry. Um, but yeah, you can see I just loved living in Seattle, being surrounded, living in Vancouver, just being surrounded by mountains. And all this to say, mountains are very, very important in the Bible. How many of you guys know that? Mountains are very, very significant in the Bible. A lot of things took place on mountaintops. A lot of things happened on mountains. Many people have just amazing God encounters. Many people have amazing experiences, um, and they're called mountaintop experience, right? Because it's so spectacular or amazing. Just an encounter, God events on a mountain. So God encounters on Mount, just a few, I want to list a few, you guys are very familiar. Noah, you all know that the floodwaters receded and the ark came to rest on Mount Ararat. And Mount Ararat is where God gave Noah the covenant sign and promise that he would never again flood the earth and destroy the earth in that way. And the covenant was sealed right there. Mount Ararat is the encounter that Noah had with God. Abraham. Abraham, we know the story of him and Mount Moriah. This is where he was asked to sacrifice his only son, Isaac, to kill him and sacrifice him. And this is where God met him and instead say, whoa, whoa, stop, and provided a, a, an animal, a ram instead. And that was Abraham on Mount Moriah. Moses, he's very closely associated with mountains, right? On Mount Horab, what did he see? The burning bush. So that was his encounter. He sees a, a, a bush that's not being burned up, and he sees that on Mount Horab. Also, later is where he receives the Ten Commandments, also known as Mount Sinai, more commonly known as Mount Sinai. But again, on the mountaintop, Moses receives, directly speaks with, and receives the Ten Commandments. And also, Elijah, who can forget the story of Elijah and Mount Carmel, right? This is where the prophets of Baal, I believe 450 prophets of Baal, the showdown happens, the challenge goes down, and um, yeah, that also happened, Elijah and Mount Carmel. Mountains were also important for Jesus. So not just these Old Testament figures and historically, but also for Jesus. We are told countless times, countless times, various times throughout the New Testament, where did Jesus go to pray? Where did he go to be alone? He went up on the mountainside. Often you will find him getting away from the crowds by going to the mountain and praying on the mountain. Also, the famous Sermon on the Mount, you guys all know, it's recorded in all three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, not John. And this is a collection of Jesus' most famous, it's his most famous sermon, most famous teachings of Jesus. It includes the Beatitudes, it includes just all this uh, wonderful, wonderful, rich stuff that all most sermons come from. And Matthew is the one that places this happening on the side of a mountainside. He says, up on a mountainside, Jesus went and begins teaching these things. So the Sermon on the Mount is very, very crucial. 
The Mount of Olives, or Mount Olivet. You guys have heard that, right? Mount of Olives, Mount Olivet. This is most closely associated with Jesus, especially during his last days. During his last week on earth, during his last days, Mount Olivet, because Bethany, which is a town, which is the home of his friends, who? Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. They live in Bethany. Bethany is a town that's located on the eastern slope of Mount Olivet, or the Mount of Olives. And you know, Jesus went there to see them and visited them often, right? And also, I don't know if you've ever heard of this, the Olivet Discourse. Some of you guys who, who know this stuff. The Olivet Discourse is very similar to the Sermon on the Mount. It's a collection of his teachings, probably his second most well-known uh, teachings after the Sermon on the Mount, but it's called the Olivet Discourse, and also Matthew, Mark, and Luke write about it. And this body of teaching is all about the future destruction of Jerusalem. It's about the time and the period of tribulation. It's about the second coming of Christ. This teaching, this heavy, serious stuff, is called the Olivet Discourse because, again, he does his teaching from the side of the mountain. And thirdly, for the uh, Mount Olivet or um, the Mount Olives, the Garden of Gethsemane. How many of you guys know that the Garden of Gethsemane is actually located on the western slope of the Mount of Olives? Now, the Garden of Gethsemane is very important because, as you know, the night of his arrest, after he has dinner with his friends and stuff, he goes there, and this is the place and the location and the site of Jesus just praying so that sweat pours out like drops of blood and he is just crying out to the Lord because he knows what's to come. He knows what's going to happen. And so everybody's heard of the Garden of Gethsemane, but that also is on the slope of the Mount of Olives. Another important mountain um, associated with Jesus, this one actually, um, you see in the parentheses, it's actually a hill, okay? So, okay, I squeeze, I, I just, you know, slide that in there. It depends on your definition of mountain, a hill. You know, I'm a small person. A hill looks like a mountain to me. But no, people say, um, you know, a hill, a mountain. But Golgotha is the place of the skulls. Golgotha is the Aramaic word for the place of the skulls. And as you know, our Lord Jesus was crucified on a hill far away, stood an old rugged cross. You know, that very famous song, that, you know, instead of on a mount far away, it's a hill far away. But uh, Cal Calvary is also referred to this place, Golgotha. And the Calvary is from the Latin word of what, where that place is. And like I said, Golgotha is the Aramaic word for the place of the skulls. So again, you can see that Jesus, closely associated, mountains are very, very important, Old Testament as well as the New Testament. Now I want to look at a particular God encounter this afternoon, of one very particular God encounter, and that is called the Transfiguration. See my graphics here. This is called, the, it's called the Transfiguration. You can find it in Matthew chapter 17. If you have your Bibles, you can open there. It's also written about in Mark chapter 9, also in Luke chapter 9, in all three Gospels. It's called the Transfiguration because Jesus was transfigured, He was transformed. The, the form of His face and His clothes changed right? And we don't know exactly what happened. A lot of scholars and a lot of uh, people uh, uh, discuss and, and talk about Catholic background, Jewish background, about what, you know, what this is about, what happened. But what we do know for sure is that he 
changed. He was transformed. He was transfigured. His face and his clothes. There was something definitely supernatural happening here. Definitely something supernatural about him. What we also know is that he was not alone. Again, supernatural uh, presence and being of people. So let's look at Matthew chapter 17, verses 1 through 9. If you guys have your Bibles, if not, it's up here. All right. Verses 1 through 19, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John. These were his favorites. Yeah, Jesus had favorites. Um, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. So it was just Jesus and these three guys. They went up a high mountain by themselves alone. There he was transfigured before them. Jesus' face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Just then, there appeared before them Moses and Elijah, talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I'll put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While Peter was still speaking, a bright cloud came and it covered them. And a voice from the cloud said, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. I can't do Morgan Freeman, <laughs> but that's who I always think about when you think of God, right? This is my son um, whom I love. Or is it Earl James Earl Jones also has that voice. Uh, with, with him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, hey, don't tell anyone what you just saw until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. Don't tell anyone until these things have come to pass. The passage begins with the words, after six days, right? If you look at verse one, after six days. I think it's important to look back and see what happened six days ago. If he says after six days, that means something happened six days ago. So what is it that happened? I think we're going to need this background information. If you look at the previous chapter, so we're in chapter 7, verse 1. Look back to chapter 16, and we get a... a we get to see what happened six days ago. Before Peter, John, and James went up on the mountaintop with Jesus, it was six days ago, very recent, that they heard the shocking news for the first time. They heard the shocking news for the first time that in the very near future, that Jesus would be rejected, beaten, and killed that he was going to be rejected, beaten, and killed in Jerusalem. This is when he shares with them. Now, this news, of course, terrified his disciples. It, it, it just confused them and terrified them. Um, in fact, you know that well-known passage um, about when... Um, so it's in chapter 16. Jesus is telling them what's to come. It's the very famous passage where when Jesus says this and all things that will pass, Peter says and rebukes Jesus and says, no, no, never, Lord, never, Lord. This shall never happen to you. No, no way. And what is Jesus' famous line? Get behind me, Satan. A lot of people quote that. Get behind me, Satan. This is where it happens. It was six days ago when Jesus reveals for the first time what's going to happen, what's coming, what lays ahead for him. And this famous encounter, get behind me, Satan. You are the things of the flesh and of, of man and not the things of God. Jesus, you know, in turn rebukes him. What kind of Messiah and Savior 
would be beaten and killed by the very people he came to save. What kind of Messiah, what kind of Savior will be beaten, arrested, beaten, and killed by the very people that he came to save? How will Jesus save anyone if he's dead? They're confused. You can understand the terror, the confusion that's happening. Now, God knew the confusion and fear that laid in the hearts of the disciples after hearing this news. Terror struck their hearts. So he gave them the peace and the confidence to trust and believe in his son through this mountaintop experience. Think about that for a moment. So after this revelation, it's huge. Guy you've been following around for three years, he's the Messiah, he's the Savior, you know? Because again, six days ago, Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And they're like, you're the Messiah. So they know who he is. They are gung-ho about this. Salvation has come, you know? Repression from the Romans and everyone else who's out to get the uh, Israelites, right? And then after all this, Jesus reveals, okay, but I'm going to be beaten, tortured, and, and I'm going to die, right? It's got to be earth-shattering for them. So God knows the confusion and fear in their hearts, and he gives them the peace and confidence to trust and believe in this son, in his son, through this mountaintop experience. So Jesus leads them up to the mountaintop. He leads them into this experience, and he, he takes them to pray, and I'm sure he's taking them there so that, you know, that's where he goes to pray, so he's taking these guys with him to find peace, to really pray this through, to find strength for what you know, to be strengthened from God on what lay ahead because big things are going to be happening, big, um, hard things. Suffering is going to come. And it's on that mountain God allowed them to see that these two Old Testament figures, if you can see one with the, the tablets that represents Moses, he's got the tablets set on your, to your right, and then to the left is uh, the prophet Elijah. So he allows, God allows them, uh, Peter, James, and John, to see two important figures from the Old Testament, from biblical history, meeting and talking with Jesus. Again, Moses, what does he represent? The law, the Old Testament laws, right? And Elijah, he represents all the prophets, all the prophets. Although the disciples, they can't hear what they're talking about, they can't hear, they're not privy to the conversation between Jesus and Moses and Elijah. They don't know what what's being said here. But this confirmed everything to them that Jesus had been telling them. This was confirmation to them that Jesus had indeed come to fulfill the law, as he had been saying. Jesus indeed had come to fulfill the words of the prophets that were spoken about him. Because all throughout the Old Testament, the uh, prophecies and even um, Moses, all things pointed to Jesus and what is going to happen. And then comes a voice from the clouds. This voice comes saying, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. Can you imagine? God is telling these guys, listen to him. This is my son. Peter, James, and John, they needed to hear these words. They needed to hear these words. Not only to confirm that what they just experienced was real. It's not a dream. It's not a figment of their imagination. So it was to confirm that what this experience that they're having is real, but also so that they would trust Jesus' leadership, that they would listen to him and follow him wherever he led them. The voice of God from the cloud says, listen to him. 
Basically, don't be afraid. This is real. Listen to my son. They were amazed, and they were overwhelmed by what they had just experienced on this mountaintop. Wouldn't you be? This is amazing. I would like to have that kind of experience. I would like to be you know, privy to, to seeing something like that. Even now, today, I wish it would happen right here. You know, uh, That would be amazing. It's this, the ultimate mountaintop experience. You know, mountains are important, and our perspective changes when we're on a different elevation. We live down here with our nose to the grind, you know, day to day, but when you're up on the mountain, your perspective changes. Things look different from up there. You feel like you're on top of the world. Your perspective changes, and that's why when we have these big spiritual uh, moments, experience, encounters, revelations, you know, they're called mountaintop experiences, right? Who would want that to end? Not Peter. When you're in the moment, who wants that to end? Peter certainly did not. He's always the fast talker. He's always the one putting his foot in his mouth. He's the eager beaver. So Peter blurts out. He's like, Lord, Lord, it's good for us to be here. Hey, hey, do you want me to put up three shelters? I got you. I got one for you. I can make one for Moses, and I got one for Elijah. You want me to do that? We could stay up here, you know, just hang out and, you know, prolong this. This is the best place to be. Peter's trying to delay the inevitable. I would too. He didn't want this mountaintop experience to end. He wanted to stay in the moment. He wanted to live in it as long as he could. And again, who would blame him? And really, we're not so different from Peter. We're not so different from Peter. We love our mountaintop experiences, right? We love our Holy Ghost, Holy Spirit encounters and moments with God. If it was up to us, we'd never come down, right? Just like Peter here, we would build a fort up there and just stay, you know, in the clouds, hearing God's voice coming, you know, audibly. You would stay up there, build a fort. We'd never come down. And our experience or encounter with God usually happens where? When you think about your most pivotal, earth-shattering experience, encounter, um, a moment with God, did it happen at a retreat? Maybe it was the first time uh, you gave your uh, life to the Lord. Did it happen at a prayer meeting? Did it happen at a revival meeting? Did it happen during your baptism? Did it happen at a prayer meeting? Maybe at a worship service somewhere. Maybe at a conference, you know, the voice of the apostles. Maybe when you were out at Bethel Church. Maybe when you were doing an internship. Maybe when you were at DTS, you know, mission trip or something. Where and when? Think to that moment that that happened. But unfortunately, it doesn't last forever. And we eventually have to leave the mountaintop. So many people, they stay and remain and become staff members of YWAM because they can't bear to leave it. It's so good working with Jesus people every day, eating and sleeping with Jesus people, working for Jesus. You know, it's, you're in it. You feel alive. You feel like, oh, you know, you don't have to deal with secular coworkers. You don't, every day is praise and worship, you know? So people want to stay in that. Missionaries, mission life is really, really tough. Uh, don't get me wrong, right? But, you know, when you go on these short mission trips where you know you get to get on the plane and come back home to air conditioning, 
you know, and, and good Korean food, when you know that that's right there, then you can endure that, and it's just an amazing mission experience, short-term mission experience, not the long-term, right? So think back where um, it could have happened. But unfortunately, it does not last. One of the most important verses in today's text is verse 9. One of the most important verses. As they were coming down the mountain, as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus didn't allow them to stay there. He brought them all back down. He brought them down off the mountain, even telling them not to mention this until after he had been risen from the dead. Peter, James, and John had to return to the realities of their world. They had to come down. They had to return to the realities. And the reality was harsh. You know, again, Jesus had just told them what's going to be happening to them, the persecution that's going to come, all that stuff. They had to return to what lay ahead. They had to return to the things that Jesus said was going to happen to them. The same goes for us. The same exact thing goes for us. After a spiritually high experience, oftentimes we come crashing back to reality. I remember when I was in a youth group, you know, I grew up in the church. We would go to retreats, and, you know, on that last night of the retreat, it's just, you know, it's, you got to go for it on that last night of the retreat because if God's not going to touch you then, it's over, game over, right? And so you are just ready. You're just like, oh, you know, touch me, Lord. You know, this is the last night. It's all in, right? You know what I'm talking about if you guys grew up in the church. I don't know if it, I guess it still happens with college group and Ark and Covenant, you know, but I'm just thinking it was much more the pure pressure of it all in youth group. Youth group was all about the ugly crying on the last night. It was all about people receiving tongues. It was all about just, ah, you know? Um, yeah, the spiritually high experience. And then what happens? You got to take that church bus and come back. And you got school Monday morning, right? Right? You know, and, you know for adults, you got work. You got work the next day. But for me, you had school the next day. You had to come back and you had to go back to school. And when you come crashing back to the reality after a spiritual high where you are just like so, you and God are like, this, you know, nothing can phase me, I'm walking on clouds, you know, just, just this euphoric experience with God. And then what happens? You walk in the door, you fight with your spouse, right? You fight with your kids. Your house is a mess. I was only gone for the weekend, and the kids just, you know, messed up the house, or your husband just, you know, did this or that, and, you know, so you come back in, and boom, you get hit with fighting with your spouse, your kids. If you are in youth group, fighting with your parents, you know, fighting with your twin sister, fighting with um, your siblings, and then you come back into what? Financial stress, you know? That stuff, you come back to it, even after a super spiritual high experience, you come back, Bills need to be paid, right? Um, work stress issues, relationship issues that you're having with coworkers, um, health issues. Yeah, when you were up on that mountaintop, you thought, you know, for that moment, you didn't feel any pain, right? Right? Things were that good, where you weren't even feeling the physical pain and the aches and things. It was like suspended for that moment. And then you come back and, oh, you know, things hurt again. Things ache and stuff. And you're like, I thought I was healed, you know? But then you come back crashing to earth and you feel those, those aches and pains again. So maybe back to the health issues. So as time goes by and life goes on, that mountaintop experience 
or that spiritual high just of, of God's intimate presence that you're just, you know, there. Intimate presence seems like a distant memory. Seems like it was a distant memory only. And you feel, you feel tired. You feel discouraged. And you're not living your best Christian life. You're not living your best Christian life. In fact, you're living like, you're dragging, you know? You're feeling just not a victorious life, but a defeated life. And you're just dragging. So some people, what do they do? They attempt to relive that moment, right? They try to recreate that moment, don't they, right? They will go from revival to revival to revival, you know? They will go back to North Georgia over and over and over again. No, I'm just kidding, I'm just kidding. <laughs> No, it's good. It's good. I haven't been yet. I haven't been yet. <laughs> I'm just jealous. No, I'm kidding. Um, no, um, but do you know what I mean? You know, they want to recreate it. They want to live in that moment. They want to relive it. Why not? It was awesome. God spoke to me. I was feeling, you know, and so you will go back. You go to every revival meeting that happens. You go to every retreat. You go every praise night, right? And, you know, all this in an attempt to relive that same experience and to recreate it. In fact, life doesn't seem right. Something's off if one of those experiences isn't right around the corner. Do you know what I'm talking about? These are what we call kind of like the spiritual junkies. Now, I've never been addicted to drugs or anything, so I can only speak from, not from experience, but, you know, you, you hear about people who need that high or, you know, they get a taste of it and then they become a junkie or something and you have to keep looking for it and it's got to be even a bigger experience than the last experience. God's got to show up even bigger and wow you even more so that, you know, to keep you going and you're searching and searching and searching for this. Life just doesn't seem right unless one of these experiences is right around the next corner for you. And they begin seeking an experience rather than Jesus the person. You hear me? They begin seeking the experience, that emotional, that spiritual high, rather than Jesus himself. It's like when we go to those uh, healing seminars or healing revivals and stuff like that. We went to the oil revival at the Rock Church. You know, over and over again, what was he preaching? Don't come here seeking the healing, seek the healer, right? That's something that they say all the time. Don't come seeking the healing, come seeking the healer, right? So again, but we know people like this. They go from experience to experience. That's what they're seeking. They want to recreate that high. People want to leap from mountaintop to mountaintop, you know? They hear that Bible verse from glory to glory and they misinterpret that. Glory to glory doesn't mean you're hopping from mountaintop to mountaintop, from glorious experience to glorious experience. If you really look at that from glory to glory, it's talking about the glory of the Old Testament, and then you're going into the glory of the New Testament, okay? It's not from these emotional highs of glory to glory. People misquote that. So we, do, we want to leap from mountaintop to mountaintop, and you know what? We ignore the valleys. We're ignoring the valleys. How many of you know that the vast majority of the Christian life is lived in the valleys? Vast majority of our Christian lives is lived in the valleys. Thank you for that affirmation. <laughs> it's not how we successfully navigate the mountaintop experience, right? Think about it. It's not how we successfully navigate the mountaintop experience, but rather it's how we successfully navigate the trials and tribulations that happen in the valley. That's what makes us and shapes us. Let me share this. 
there's little actual growth up on the mountaintop. You think about this. Okay, I'm going to get all science, nature, physical. There's little actual growth up on the mountaintop. The air is thinner up there. Not much grows up there. Vegetation gets scarcer and scarcer the higher you go up. I'm right, right? On the top of the mountain itself, you will find mostly rock and dirt or snow, right? Rock, dirt, some snow. For growth, we have to come down the mountain and go into the valleys. We have to go into the valleys where there's an abundance of water, fertile soil, lush greenery. Look at this. You see up in the mountains, it's covered by the you know, snow, and it's just granite. It's just rock. It's just dirt up there. You come down to the valleys, and this is where you're going to see the lush greenery, the color. Look how beautiful that is. You see the mountain peaks, but it's down here, the fertile soil, the water. You're going to grow. You're going to grow down here and just you know, bloom and blossom and color and stuff. It's in the valley where growth happens. Let me ask you this question. What's the most famous psalm? Yes, thank you. The most famous psalm, Psalm 23. Who doesn't know Psalm 23? Yes, the Lord is my shepherd. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. Think about the Lord is my shepherd, Psalm 23. Think about this. The Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. This is the most famous Psalm, Psalm 23. When we're in the valley, surrounded by worry, Fear, suffering, pain, disappointment, discouragement. When we're surrounded by all these things, Jesus is with us. Jesus is with us. In fact, he taps us on the shoulder and he says, if you look at verses 6 through 8, he taps us on the shoulder and he says here, when the disciples heard this, heard this meaning the voice of God saying, you know, listen to my son, they fell face down on the ground terrified. But Jesus came and tapped them on the shoulder. And he said, get up. He said, don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. So Moses and Elijah are long gone. All they're left with is Jesus. No more vision of Elijah and, and Moses, right? Jesus came and touched them, taps them on the shoulder and says, get up, don't be afraid. When we're in the valley, all we need is Jesus. All we need is Jesus. Look up, look up. When I kept saying to myself, look up, look up, I kept hearing Lauren Daigle's song, look up, what is that song called? Look up child, do you guys know Lauren Daigle's song? Go back and look at the lyrics of that song. Look up, child, right? Look up. Look up, and you will see Jesus. Even in the valley, it says, though I walk through the valley, I will fear no evil because he is with me. Jesus made sure that Peter, James, and John left the mountain and returned down to the valley. Sure, they were afraid of what was going to come, but for now, Jesus was with them. Jesus was by their side, and that was enough for them. The time is coming when we'll live eternally within the mountaintop. That time is coming. Yeah, we look forward to the new heavens and new earth. We look forward to eternally being with the Savior. That time is coming, but that time is not now. Right now, we're called to live here 
And most of that living happens in the valley. Jesus gave the three disciples this glowing mountaintop experience to help them through the dark valley when he would be taken away and killed. Think about that. He, he gives them the horrible news that he's going to be, you know, rejected, tortured, killed, taken away. He gives them this. And then this mountaintop experience happens. He gives them the taste and strength and, and just the peace of knowing even when all these things happen, even when you go back down to the valley, I am still God. I am still in control. He gives them this assurance to help them through the dark valley when he will be taken away. He graciously gives us our mountaintop experiences with him to strengthen us and to sustain us as we navigate the many valleys of our lives. So when you think back to the mountaintop experience or your conversion or the time you received tongues or the time that that pastor prayed over you and re you received healing or some miraculous answer or, you know, when you think about these amazing supernatural experiences and encounters that you've had, think about that. You're not meant to stay in it. Don't go chasing after them from revival to revival. No. You draw on those experiences, and it strengthens you when you're in the valley. Because you had those experiences, you can look to that, look to God, and say, I can have them again. He is always there for me. And when you're in the valleys, it will sustain you and strengthen you to help navigate you. Not so that we can stay up on the mountains. And I want to close with this. But it is for us to cherish these experiences and draw from them when we're in the valleys. And this is a question I want to close with. Where are you now? Where are you now? Are you on the mountaintop? Are you in the valley? Are you on your way up the mountaintop? Are you hiking? Or are you descending? What, repelling. Is, that, is it called repelling when you're coming down? Uh, off the mountain, where are you now, the mountain or the valley? But what I want to say is both are good places to be. Both are good places to be because he is with you. Both are good places to be. Don't always just look up to the mountains. You can be in the valleys, and that's a good place. That's where you are going to be, you know, formed. That's where you, uh, God is there. They're good places to be both. And so today, as is our um, tradition, on the first Sunday of each month, we have communion. And I was thinking about this, you know? We do communion once a month. Some churches do it every week. Some churches rarely do it, only twice a year, maybe on Easter or, or um, Thanksgiving or something. But we do it once a month. And this is such a visual, physical, tangible reminder that God is with us. We do this in remembrance of him because of the commandment that he has given to us. And this, when he even says, the body, the physical breaking of the bread, the juice, you know, the wine, the blood poured out, visually you can just kind of picture and see, taste and see that he is good, eat of it, the bread, even though it's a tiny little wafer. Um, you know, you want more. It leaves you wanting more, right? This is just a taste that God is with us. And as we share in this time of communion, the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist, whatever your tradition is that, and what it's called, we are reminded that God is with us, whether on the mountaintop, but especially in the valleys.
Let me invite the praise team to come up and also the um, community ushers, deacons, elders. Could we have the Hope Kids and Jam come? If they're not on their way, can you have someone go grab them? Oh, can you guys? hot, but I'm going to wear this. spoke about the Garden of Gethsemane, right? And on that evening, Jesus is arrested. waiting for the children to um, come in. Again, think about your mountaintop experience. Are you longing to climb that mountain again? Are you longing to be back in that place? Or are you okay where you are? Because you draw strength from that mountain experience. Because you know Jesus is in the valleys with you. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. You don't need Jesus' comforting when you're on that mountaintop. But when you're in the valley, thy rod, their rod and the staff, they comfort me. He is with us. a month. We welcome children to the table. We believe in infant baptism. We believe that God knew you before you knew him. That God has called us by name. That he knows us. So we welcome all our baptized children as well to come. Some churches and some uh, traditions are very strict about people who can come to the table. That only those who have been formally baptized uh, can come. But we here at Hope Church, if you can acknowledge and affirm Jesus Christ as your Lord and you have not been formally baptized for whatever reason, you're welcome to come. Come and partake and celebrate the Lord's table with us. Also, if you are uncomfortable in coming, no peer pressure, 
no peer pressure. There is that verse in the Bible where they say, go and make things right before you come to the table. It's okay. It's okay if you do not want to come to the table today. So on that evening, when our Lord Jesus sat with his closest friends, not just um, Peter, James, and John, but the rest of his disciples, these were his closest friends. I mean, he spent time with them. He did life with them, three years. And he knows what's before him. He knows what's to come. And as they are celebrating the Passover meal, he takes the bread that was on the table and he breaks it. And after giving thanks to his heavenly father, he extends it and gives it to his closest friends. And he says these words, he says, take, eat, this is my body broken for you. Every time you do this, do it in remembrance of me. Also in the same way on the table was wine. Here we have juice, but there was wine at the table. And he said, in the same way, after pouring it, he said, This cup is the new covenant, sealed in my blood, shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. Every time you drink this cup, do this also in remembrance of me. And so it is that every time we come and we celebrate the Lord's Supper and we eat of his body and we drink of a life-giving, life-sustaining blood of Jesus, that we are proclaiming the saving death of our risen Lord until he comes again. Because for sure, he will come again. There is a time coming when we will live forever, eternally, in that mountaintop. But until that day comes, we eat of his body and drink of his blood, remembering and also looking forward to. It's the already and the not yet. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just come before you, Lord. Even as I now hold this bread as a symbol of your body, and as I hold this cup symbolically of your blood, Father, we celebrate the good gifts of our Heavenly Father, given through his only Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Yea, though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we will not fear. We know that you seek us, you find us, and you are there with us in those valleys. God, we thank you, Lord, that you never leave us or forsake us. Father, we thank you for the amazing mountaintop experiences that you give us. You are so gracious to give those times and encounters to us, and we cherish them, and we want more. You always leave us wanting more, God. We are never satisfied. We want more. So, Lord, as we come to this table today, help us to remember the goodness of our God by receiving these good gifts. In Jesus' name, amen.